welcome back to you know what i've been wondering i'm sarah i'm jane meet my neighbors How's it going, jane? <laughs> meet, meet our neighbors yeah if you hear a lot of like moving in the background that's jane's neighbors i don't know what they're doing <laughs> they're redecorating again it truly sounds like they're just pushing around a dresser in circles around the room they're like tuesday six o'clock time to move the furniture we know jane records <laughs> The normal time, the normal time. But sometimes we record on Mondays and they're and then too. I think they're just loud people is what I've learned about your They're neighbors. just really into feng shui. Yeah, and... they really are. <laughs> I don't, I feel like it would be better if I was talking about like an earthquake or something this week and that would really like set a vibe, but I'm not. So. Yeah. We are talking about spooky True. things though. It, it's it's honestly like like the thing that comes to mind is Miss Trenchville's like shot put or whatever those big heavy Olympic balls. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that scene in Matilda where Miss Trenchville just drops yeah the gym things. class scene. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I've read the classics. Any other updates for this week? Um. No. <laughs> How about you? How you doing? I'm good. I, was just really I know. I know that's okay. <laughs> um, I am good. Um, I saw our mother. Um, she's great. Um, <laughs> you have to call her. <laughs> I haven't told her that I would call her. I've just told you. But well, I, I, I I didn't say anything about you not calling her when I was with her. Okay. But you have okay. to call her. Okay. So no, she's, she's not, not mad, mad at me. me. Although last time I talked to her, I was like, I miss you. And she was like, well, you never call. You have to call her. She'll be so happy to hear from you. She'll love it. She'll I love will, it. I will. She wants, she's going to, she'll tell you lots of stories about the kitties, which is always nice. Um, how am I? Other than that, I am good. Um, I had a little mini celebration at work today because BTS got number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for butter. And I was very happy because they posted many, many happy posts and it made me feel warm inside. Um, so I'm having a good day today because that made me very happy to see how happy. I just, I don't need myself to be happy. I need the seven Korean dancing boys to be happy and then I'm happy. Um, so I'm good. Today was a good day. I was excited about that. Maybe we feel good on the inside, but I'm ready Yay. to rock and roll, you know, learn some stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, <laughs> I got two papers back. My two final papers back for grad school. And I got a hundred percent on both of them, which is very Yay! exciting. They were both big, big research papers and I worked really hard on them. And that's why we had to skip a week. And so it felt good that I did a good job. Oh, I'm glad. That's how I am. You just oh, thank it. you. That's good. But we can we can we can go ahead and you know do this part. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So I, I don't exactly have an answer for you. I don't for remember what, you what asked I asked me about, but like you asked me what the story was about the head in the jar oh! at <laughs> I did ask this. I forgot. I cannot find any evidence of such. Then a how did it get on the on the document? Um, it's on the notes. It's in our. It's, yeah, it's in it's our notes. notes. I, I, I didn't see that there. I believe you. Who put there. it there? Did I? But I don't remember seeing. it. I don't remember I don't know. putting it there. 
<laughs> I'm going crazy. I don't even remember seeing it. I don't have my phone on me. Can well, if pull I pull it up? it up and I say it's there, then that's not you seeing it. That's just me saying it's there. And like, if you trust me, respect to you. But like, I could be lying. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't lie. I wouldn't lie. I do trust you, but now I'm not sure I do. Head in a jar at Madame Tussauds in London, question mark. Okay, well. This seems like something I added because. I don't think they're. The, the one above and the one below, I also added. All right. Well, tell me what you know. Tell me what you found out. If you researched something totally different than that, then that's fine. Well, no, I, 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 I stayed in that vein. I, I, re- I, did, I got more of a complete story of Madame Tussauds mm-hmm. as a person. We did talk about her a little bit in our Haunted Houses episode. Yeah, she's come up before. Yeah. So a bit of a refresher. Uh, she was a French woman who learned to sculpt in her uncle's wax museum in Paris. It wasn't exactly her uncle, but he referred to her, or she referred to him as such. She was known throughout London. She, she like scandalized the French people with how eerily accurate the death masks that she created were. Mm-hmm. And she was able to create such accurate figures because she created death masks of people straight from their executions. Uh, when people were guillotined during the French Revolution, she would just pick up their heads and uh, right. Use... She like she grabbed yeah. them and snuck them away. Maybe this is why I wrote down "head in the jar." She like kept one. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, she had several executioners in her family, and she apprenticed with her mother's employer, who was oh. an anatomist who sculpted in wax. In fact, her mother's employer's name was um, Philip. Kurt- Curtius? C-U-R-T-I-U-S. C-U-R-T-I. I think it's Curtius. Curtius. Her mother was his housekeeper, and he adopted Marie and took her on as an apprentice from a very young age. This was the guy who she referred to as her uncle. Mm-hmm. Some speculate Marie, that... Yeah. Hurry up! <laughs> Some people speculate that this man was, in fact, her biological father, and Mm. this was kept secret because Mm. he and her mother were not married. Mm. Others suspected that her father was some unnamed historical aristocrat who abandoned Marie's mother when she was born, and he was trying to save them from scandal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she just called him her uncle, and he taught her how to mold with wax, and he was an artist, but she was like, she got much more famous for it yes um he had an exhibit of figures and it was mainly living politicians who he would pose for showings and he made a lot of humorous political statements Mm. and also like specifically worked with marie on making death masks and when he was called away to serve in the military she had to do most of the work by herself in her book madame tussaud and the history of wax works pamela Pillbeam said that Tussaud sat on the steps of the exhibition with the bloody heads on her knees, taking the impressions of their features. In 1789, her uncle slash mentor made wax heads of Jacques Necker and the Duke of Orléans and carried them in a protest march two days before the attack on the Bastille. So because of this and the fact that she had served as an art tutor at Versailles to Louis XVI's sister, Madame Elizabeth, 
the mm. two of them were considered to be royal sympathizers and marie was arrested and her head was even shaved in preparation for her execution by guillotine she was kept alive in prison however because she had a useful skill that they wanted to capitalize on and they would bring her the heads of those who were being executed in the revolution and forced her to make their death masks and in some cases whole body casts but mostly just death masks uh, she was also tasked with making sculptures of important frenchmen especially you know revolutionaries Mm -hmm. She did not remain in prison forever, but there are some varying stories of how she left the prison. The most likely is what she wrote about in her memoirs, which was that she was released because her uncle had a friend uh, in the revolutionary Jean-Marie Colotte de Herbois. I think that's how you pronounce it. I recently had a conversation with someone where they were talking about how French was so much easier to pronounce than Spanish. I was like, not to me. No, it's, it's I really struggled with their very odd, it's very nasally and there are like yeah. sounds that I really struggle to make in French. Like that noise yeah. is really big and I really, I don't like making the noise and I struggle yeah. to do it. It's an, there are, I've seen so many TikToks that have been like long sentences in French that are like the same word. Like one was like taunt, 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 and it was like six different words that all were spelled differently but pronounced the same. I was like, I don't understand. Well, okay, so here is the the one thing that kept coming up in my research. In my research, there was one thing that kept consistently coming up in all of my various ways of Googling Madame Tussaud head in jar, Madame Tussaud head in museum like i tried so many different combinations and one thing kept coming up and that was the television show legends of the hidden temple mm, interesting yes. yes now this was a children's trivia television show and in the show they would tell the kid there was this one segment where they would read like urban legends or historical legends to a group of children that were competing and then have them compete in trivia about that legend that they were told. In one episode called The Melted Head of Madame Tussaud, they tell this urban legend that Napoleon Bonaparte came to visit Madame Tussaud in prison so that she could make a sculpture of him. And rather than making a solid wax bust, she instead came up with this like tricky plan where she made a hollow mask mm -hmm. and basically according to the legend um put it over her face and after he left snuck out of the prison by pretending to be him and just got in a carriage and was like it's me napoleon onward and they were like okay cool boss and they left <laughs> in the like legend that they tell in the show she sits in the back of this carriage for hours and the face starts melting because the sun is rising and she's hot <laughs> on her face. And the right. driver's like, boss, like Napoleon, why is your face melting? <laughs> uh, but they don't tell how that story ends, but that's what they say on the show. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I will say um, that the trivia questions that they ask about the kid, about the, about, you know, the entire subject, all of the mm -hmm. questions regarding facts about like what was her name? Where was she from? What did she do? 
what is she famous for? Yada, yada. Like all of the things that require real knowledge mm-hmm. were like, they provided that information in the story. And those questions were historically accurate. And the, it was only the two final questions that were like dealt with stuff that they said in the legend that is only known through what they said in that story. And good for them. They started with according to the legend. So it's overall this trivia round is less historical recognition and more like story comprehension. Right. Um, but that show claimed that that was how Marie Tussaud got out of prison, but I, they didn't totally <laughs> be like, this is history. They were like, this is a legend, but mm. I couldn't find a record of this legend anywhere else. So I think they just made it up for, you know, the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Back to real history. After Madame Tussaud was somehow out of prison, most likely just she had a connection that got her out. Um, she got married. She had a few children and she inherited her uncle's wax collection. And she began to professionally make death masks and actually be paid for it instead of being forced to do it in prison. In 1802, there was a treaty called the Treaty of Amiens. Amiens, uh, I'm assuming Amiens, in which there was a truce between France and the UK. And during this time, she left France to go to London. She took her four-year-old son with her and she left behind her younger like baby son. Uh, with her husband and she went to London and while she was there she presented her collection of portraits and um, sculptures and was invited by this man named Paul Philidor to exhibit her work alongside his show at the Lyceum Theatre. His show was uh, made use of magic lanterns and a new word that is a fun word I just learned phantasmagoria which is just horror theater we talked a little bit about it in our haunted house episode um you know he tried to make really realistic looking dead bodies like in to put on stage Mm -hmm. and just tried to do anything to like creep out his audience and he was like hey madame Tussaud, like come be part of my show and she would just she just (laughs) made an exhibit to go alongside of it but it wasn't it didn't make her a lot of money from that so she um sort of continued her collection on her own and she was not allowed to return to France for a while because the Napoleonic Wars were still going on so she traveled around the British Isles with her older son showing her collection Uh, during this time she created um, wax sculptures of famous decapitated French figures including King Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, and Maximilien Robespierre 20 years later, she finally reunited with her younger son, Francois, and her husband, though, stayed in France and she never saw him again. So bye. Um, (laughs) I don't know if that's a sad thing or if we just don't care about him. Who knows? Upon her retirement, her younger son, Francois, which I did kind of think it was funny that the son that stayed in France was named Francois. It's like, you keep the one who's got France in his name. He stays in France. Yeah. <laughs> and the <laughs> older son that... means French. I know. And the older son that traveled with her, his name was Joseph, which is like, it was like, I'll take the one whose name can more pass for British, Joseph. <laughs> yeah. And you'll yeah. keep Francois in France. But I don't know the reasoning for splitting the kids up. Uh, it's very parent trap-esque. But... 
yeah, she got him back and trained her younger son in the family business, you know, of making sculptures of people's faces. And upon her retirement, he became the chief artist of her exhibition. And he was then succeeded by his son, who was then succeeded by his son. And it just became the Tussaud family business. And it grew and grew and grew to be this major tourist attraction in London and spread to have many locations all over the world. Mm -hmm. So I, as I mentioned, I could not find any evidence of a head in a jar at any of the locations of Madame Tussaud. But I think it is likely... I know. I think it could. Be, it's very likely that as Marie Tussaud was making death masks of people who were executed, she could have taken a head or two. She could home. have had a head in a and jar. She may, yeah, she maybe put one in a jar at one point. <laughs> it's the possible. odds of someone having a head in a jar are slim, but never zero. <laughs> never zero. And there is a storage area at the wax museums where they just keep like sculpted heads which is very creepy. I would not want to go there. But, you know, I'm sure there are some like urban legends that one of them could be real. And, you know, maybe at some point in history, they put one in a jar. I don't know. But why did I write that down specifically? I don't don't know. Did someone ask you about that? I I don't know. (laughs) I wrote that down specific. And I wrote in London, question mark. Did you go to Madame Tussauds in London and see a head Yeah, jar? but not since I wrote this note. <laughs> no, I didn't see a head in a jar. I went to Madame Tussauds in London when I was 15 years old. I did not, what, or when I was four, I think I was 14, no, I was 15. There's no way that I was sitting there being like, oh, I saw a head in a jar once in Madame Tussauds. Wonder what that was about and wrote it down. <laughs> I have like no recollection of, of that Madame Tussauds. I mean, maybe there's a sculpt, a sculpted head in a jar that some people are like. Because this note was or... recent. I don't know. I don't understand. Butter, you tell a me. A ghost put it. A ghost added Elizabeth. <laughs> maybe. What if? <laughs> this is very unlikely, but you never know. <laughs> what if one of the people who Madame Tussaud made a death mask of, like who was uh-huh. executed, and she took their head. I see where this is going. Yeah, had like a (laughs) wrongful death and she took their head and put it in a jar and this person's ghost is mad about it and wanted the world to know. Oh, So they snuck into our notes app and (laughs) put it in and was like, investigate my death. Yep, that's what happened. Investigate my death. It's a call (laughs) and we have to go to Madame Tussauds, break into the back room, find the head in the jar, identify the body. Okay, It's a deep conspiracy, but they gave us the clue. I now understand our path in life. Yeah. You think they'd give us something more specific, like, look up the name, Pierre. (laughs) (laughs) You you really would. (laughs) But no. Yeah, so that's... I was like, I, I really I'm can't so, find anything. I I'm really so thought I would find at least, like, even there was even at one point, it was like, one link was like, Reddit, head in jar, Madame Jusot. I was like, yes, there's a Reddit theory. And I clicked on it and it was like a picture of the head storage area of one of the Madame Jusot Museum. And I was like, no, thank you. And one of the comments was like, it's like that show where they have a head museum and one of them's in a jar. And I was like, what show is that? <laughs> They didn't even say the name. Of the oh my show. god! I just want to know. Well, <laughs> that was a bit of a bust. I still enjoyed the information you gave me. <laughs> I 
get it, a bust. <laughs> that wasn't even intentional. Wow. I, I thought being, for sure it was. I love being <sighs> unintentionally witty. No, it was. I'm really smart. <laughs> Are you ready to move on? I am. For the middle segment, we're going to talk about something a little more serious. Um, well, a lot of serious things happen in the world very often. And, that is very true. Yeah. And I have to say that I do think this is something that maybe we should have done like a full topic on, but I'm going to try to like cover as much as I can. Your section yeah. wasn't very long. Um, but today is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre slash race riot and goes by I've heard it referred to by both names and I just want to talk a little bit about what that is because um President Biden did make a speech about it and it is a big deal and it is a major event in um Black American history and um I want to preface like what I'm going to say about the Tulsa race riot by saying this is like a, a like I said this is an abbreviated version but also that um I saw a tweet today that was people treat the Tulsa race riot like it is the only race riot of its time. And that's not true. Um, and it was a really, really major event. And it was a very devastating thing that happened. But there are other instances of cases like this. And there continue to be, as you will see um, when I explain it. Um, and that's just something to keep in mind that I think when we uh, tokenize events like this is like this like rare occurrence, then we sort of wash out the prevalence of white supremacy and racism and violence against black men specifically. Um, so like I'm talking about this because this was a major event that happened 100 years ago and it's, it's occurrence deserves to be remembered. Um, but I'm not talking about it as a way of saying, well, this happened in the past and it never happened again. That's not what I'm doing. So on the morning of May 30th um, in 1921, a black man named Dick Rowland was riding in the elevator at the Drexel building at 3rd and Main. This is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a white woman named Sarah Page. And although the details of what followed are wishy-washy and witnesses say different things at some point in the elevator ride, Sarah page screamed and Dick Rowland fled the scene. Um, he was history.com refers to him as a teenager. I do not know exactly how old he was, mm, but on the younger spectrum. Yes. He was a young, a young, young man. Yeah. So he fled the scene. Um, and the police were called to the scene. Um, which began a a short sort of manhunt for him. And newspapers had reported that he had sexually assaulted Sarah Page. Um, this was the front page story in the Tulsa Tribune on the morning of May 31st, 1921. So Tulsa police arrested Roland the following day and they began their investigation. Um, and this article in the Tulsa Tribune had unintentionally or maybe intentionally, you never know what people are trying to do, um, created two mobs, an angry white mob um, demanding that the sheriff hand over Roland, actually I think it's Rowland, Rowland to the, to the angry mob and mm -hmm. a mob of black people trying to protect Rowland yeah. outside of the Tulsa Police Department. Now, something that's important for you to know 
about Tulsa, Oklahoma at the time is that Tulsa, Oklahoma was home of what was referred to as Black Wall Street. Um, Tulsa was a growing and very wealthy city um, because it was fueled by big oil money. And there was a lot of um, opportunities for Black people to sort of have a, a career in oil. And so generally the Black community in Tulsa was wealthier than the average in America, uh, particularly in a neighborhood called Greenwood. Important to know. This is also mm. right after World War I, where um, there was a spike in racial tensions following the war. And the Ku Klux Klan in particular had come, had had a resurgence in numbers in the 1920s. Um, so you have this city where there is a wealthier than average black population, um, but at the same time, you also have rising racial tensions across the country and mm -hmm. the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, um, particularly in this area. So around 9 p.m. on May 31st, a group of 25 armed black men, including many World War I veterans, went to the courthouse where Rowland was being kept to offer help to the police to guard Rowland. But the sheriff turned them away. Um, and following that, some of the white mob tried to break into the National Guard Armory, which was also located in Tulsa nearby. So the group of men who had gone to help Rowland, um, seeing the size of the angry mob, um, decided to go and gather more people. Um, so they returned to the courthouse around 10 p.m. with 75 armed black men, and they were met by 1,500 white men, some of whom also carried weapons. And this led to an armed altercation um, in which um, the sheriff, at this point, the sheriff um, and his men had barricaded the top floor of the courthouse to protect Rowland. But from outside, they could hear that shots were being fired and the the black, the group of black men, I don't want to refer to them as a mob because they were not an angry mob. The white, that was an angry white mob, but it was a group of armed black men. Mm -hmm. um, they began retreating back into the Greenwood district, the, um, the, the neighborhood I was speaking about. Um, and everything from there sort of erupted into chaos. So the black men were forced to retreat and over the next several hours, group, the group of white Tulsans, um, some of whom were police officials and some of whom were deputies um, and were given weapons and their actions were sanctioned by government officials. They committed, committed numerous acts of violence against the black people in the Greenwood neighborhood, including shooting of an arm, unarmed man in a movie theater. Um, in the early morning hours of June 1st, 1922, Greenwood was looted and burned by the white rioters. Governor Robertson declared martial law and National Guard troops arrived in Tulsa. Um, in the early morning. Um, but the guard, the guardsmen also assisted firemen in putting out fires and they took African-Americans out of the hands of vigilantes, um, but then imprisoned all black Tulsans who were not already interned. So essentially the National Guard showed up and they were told that the riots had been caused by um, violence that the the group of black men were encouraging 
Mm -hmm. um, and the, there was a false belief spread that this was an insurrection led by Black Tulsans. Um, and they also were led to believe that the Black Tulsans had called for reinforcements from neighboring towns and cities. So at sunrise on June 1st, thousands of white citizens were pouring into the Greenwood district, looting and burning homes and businesses over an area of 35 city blocks. Um, firefighters who arrived um, testified that rioters had threatened them with guns and forced them to leave if they tried to put out the fires. And according to a later estimate made by the Red Cross on that day, some 1,256 houses were burned. Um, 215 <gasps> others were looted, but they were not torched. Um, two newspaper offices, a school, a library, a hospital, churches, hotels, stores, and many other Black-owned businesses were also among the buildings destroyed or damaged by fire. Whoa, that's um, so many. Yeah. By the time the National Guard arrived, um, the riot had effectively already ended. Um, the guardsmen, like I said, the guardsmen helped put out the fires, but they also Im imprisoned many Black Tulsans. By mm -hmm. June 2nd, 6,000 people were under armed guard at the local fairgrounds. Um, it does not tell me how many of those were Black versus how many of those were White. Um, but 24 hours later on June 2nd, um, the violence officially ceased. Um, but at that point, like I said, the 35 blocks of Greenwood in Tulsa were pretty much burnt yeah. to the ground. Um, it is believed that more than 800 people were treated for injuries and contemporary reports um, state that 36 people died. Um, but now, that was at the time they thought 36 people died. Historians now believe as many as 300 people may have died, mostly black people living in Greenwood. Yeah. Um, Their homes were destroyed. Yeah. And like, imagine like elderly people might have had a hard time getting out. Like it yeah. was in the middle of the night. People were asleep. Um, so, and it was just, there was so much chaos that it was really hard for people to keep track. And also that um, the cops and people at the time didn't necessarily care about finding black people who had gone missing in the riot. Mm -hmm. So, that's probably why the numbers were so underreported. Following the Tulsa race massacre, the charges against Dick Rowland were dropped. The police concluded that Rowland had most likely ran into Paige or stepped on her foot. Um, and he was kept safe and under guard in jail during the riot, but he left Tulsa the next morning and he never returned. Um, in, a two, in 2001, an official race riot commission was organized to review the details of the race riot, but nobody will ever absolutely know what happened. Um, there, there's not really a clear sense of who the people were that were burning the things down, whether it was the KKK or whether it was just a, a random mob that sort of got swept up in things. Um, they can't even really effectively say where the violence started. Um, but the Race Riot Commission um, stated following this 2001 search, quote, these are not myths, not rumors, not speculations, not questions. They are historical record. Mm. Um, 
they also stated from in the 2001 race commission report this is the opening of the report black tolson said every reason to believe that dick rowland would be lynched after his arrest his charges were later dismissed and highly suspect from the start they had cause to believe that his personal safety like the defense of themselves and their community depended on them alone as hostile groups gathered and their confrontation worsened, municipal and county authorities failed to take actions to calm or contain the situation so at the time there was a lot of um, deflection away from the actions of the white mob um, they tried to say that you know they were encouraged they were um, like baited into it whatever but there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that mm -hmm. The American Red Cross remained in Tulsa for months after the massacre um, to relieve the Greenwood area, but it never really um, regained its um, financial power. Um, so this was like really a systematic erasure of black power in Oklahoma. Yeah, um, I had honestly, in before all the media attention of it in the past few days, like I had never heard of this, which is terrible. Yeah, I, I had heard of it, but it, it is very upsetting. Um, but and the other thing to note is that um, uh, this is this is the deadliest, this is one of the deadliest race riots in America, Yeah, which is why it's like talked about, why it's being talked about and why it's being honored um, yeah. in its 100th anniversary. But also um, the following this riot segregation also got worse and more strict um so segregation in the city also caused the community to have a hard time rebuilding um because they couldn't they had no power you know mm. they had no influence um and then also the um there was a new the, the new branch of the kkk sort of took this as an opportunity to exert influence um, within the city, knowing that um, a huge portion of the wealth that the black people in that community held had been um, erased. But what what is especially interesting about the Tulsa race riot is that in the decades following, there was a it was pretty much ignored. For decades, there were no public ceremonies or memorials for to commemorate uh, the events of May thirty first or June first. Um, they, many people now consider it actually a deliberate cover-up. The Tulsa Tribune removed the front page story of May 31st, um, from its archives so that the, people couldn't go back and reference, um, the article that most people believe started at least the forming of the angry mob. Mm -hmm. Um, until recently, the Tulsa race massacre was not taught in schools, as you know. Um, but it wasn't yeah. until um, 1996 on the right 75th anniversary that a service was held at Mount Zion Baptist Church, uh, which rioters had burned to the ground in 1921. Um, and they placed a memorial in front of Greenwood Cultural Center. Um, so it took a really, really long time for the events to be acknowledged by yeah. the government of Tulsa. Um, really until that 2001 report that you know, they, they tried to investigate further, but at that point, because there'd been so little acknowledgement, it was really hard to follow up and start getting an understanding sure. of what happened and find people who were there, knew something. Um, it is, it is estimated that 8,000 people were made homeless because of 
the burning of those 35 blocks. Yeah. In 2012, the Oklahoma uh, State Senate proposed a bill that required all Oklahoma high schools to teach about the Tulsa race riot, but it failed to pass. Um, the opponents of the bill claimed that students were already learning about it, which proved to be untrue. Um, According to the State Department of Education, it was a required topic in Oklahoma history classes since 2000 and U.S. history classes since 2004, and the incident has been included in Oklahoma's history books since 2009. Um, I don't know if they did any sort of follow-up to see if they were actually learning about it. Putting in the curriculum does not necessarily mean mm -hmm. that it was effectively being taught, but um, a movement to, you know, make sure it was effectively being taught was turned down by the state. But in November of 2018, the 1921 Race Riot Commission was officially renamed the 1921 Race Massacre Commission. And at the time, Oklahoma State Senator Kevin Matthews stated, although the dialogue about the reasons and the effects of the terms of riot versus massacre are very important and encouraged, the feelings and interpretations of those who experience this devastation, as well as current area residents and historical scholars, have led us to more appropriately change the name to the 1921 Race Massacre Commission. Um, and then today, like I said, President Biden gave a speech on the, uh, the race massacre, um, and he just said... Um, he called for uh, June to be a month of action on Capitol Hill. He, there were three survivors of the um, riot there um, that he acknowledged in, the, in his speech. Um, and he just said, we do ourselves no favors by pretending none of this ever happened. We can't choose to learn what we want to know and not what we should know. Mm -hmm. Just because history is silent doesn't mean it did not take place. And while darkness can hide much, it erases nothing. Some injustices are so heinous, so horrific, so grievous, that they cannot be buried no matter how hard people try. And so here it is, only with truth can come healing and justice. Um, and he stated it was not a riot. It was a massacre. So those were his official statements today. That's what I have on that. I thought it was a... No, thank you, because I'm sure there are people like me out there who were not yeah. taught it as well as they should have been. Yes. And I, I, this, obviously our show isn't, you know, this isn't like where you go to learn. I mean, you know. <laughs> what do you mean? I go here to learn every week. I don't know what you're talking about. We're not, a we're not exactly a textbook girl, but we try our best to, you know, bring forth things that like, we feel like we want to learn more about. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that, I don't know, I'm, I'm glad I learned more about it today and I want to keep learning. I want to be like, I want to learn more about what, more about things like that. It's like, I, I mean, I don't because they're terrible, but like, I, I but, that is an area. I want to continue educating myself, I guess is more of a way to say that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now. We are going to talk about runes. Oh, I totally forgot that that was what I asked you about. It really is what you asked me about. This was a weird one. I got to say, I was like, I don't know if I get it. I still don't know if I get it. <laughs> we'll find Sorry out. I ruined your week. Get, get out of here with that. No, 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 no. You got to take that back. You got to take that back. <laughs> I hated it. I refuse okay. to. That was bad. I'm sorry. My head that was I'm ending so the chat. Better. 
I'm ending the call. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This is the Good end. It's been a great run. Thank you so much. This is, you know, what I've been wondering. <laughs> Goodbye. This was. Okay. This was, you know, what I've been wondering. We had a great friendship, Jane and I, <laughs> but it's over now. Okay. So to put it simply, runes are a type of alphabet. It's really nice. all they are. I mean, that's not all they are, but that's what they are. Runes predate written Latin, and they were a series of runic alphabets used to write various Germanic languages. Very, very central in Germania. They're, they are an adaptation of Old Italic, which developed in Italy between 700 and 100 BC, which pretty much derived from Greek. There are a lot of languages. I didn't realize a that lot of ancient... Italic was not just a font. Nope. Old Italic. <laughs> was what they wrote so if you're ever in if you're ever in uh italy and you're like oh that looks like that looks like greek it's not it's old italic because it derived oh. from greek in the ancient times the oldest known runic inscriptions date back to 150 a.d the runic alphabet was generally replaced by the latin alphabet between 700 to 1100 a.d depending on where you were in europe but people still use runes for certain situations certain rituals uh so until 700 though it was um in germania at least a prime the primary written language at least it seems that way these runic alphabets had many derisions depending on where they were being used scandinavia had its own variant known as the futhark and the anglo-saxon version is the futhork so just depends on where you are the word rune derives from the Germanic term runo, which means secret or mystery, which is probably why we think of it as this, like, it's got a hidden meaning or whatever. It doesn't have a oh, hidden yeah. meaning. It's a letter, but the, <laughs> the word means secret or mystery. So there you go. Okay, um, okay. That meaning is carried across the Gothic language, Old English, Old Saxon, Middle Dutch, Old High German, and Old Norse. But it is in Finnish that the word runo means poem, and that word is used to derive, this is, I'm going to butcher this, okay? I really am. Remukurane, remukurane, which means scratched letter, and okay. that's where we get the, the word rune somehow i don't know <laughs> i was like how though but i don't know it's finnish it has a finnish origin for the meaning of like letter and i know i'm already on thin ice here but um <laughs> my brain keeps saying wow i love that singer runa mars <laughs> i'm not talking to you anymore i'm not talking to you i'm talking to them i'm talking to you people on the other end i'm ignoring jane all right, listeners. That means I can say whatever I want. Because uh -uh, I edit this, so I'll just cut you out. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. How Runic rude of you. <laughs> I I'm so upset. Runic inscriptions from 150 to 550 AD are described as period one runes. They most commonly appear on spears, shields, and other weapons, which it's important to remember that like most people didn't know how to write. So like, of course they're putting writing on like their most important things, which when you live in 550 AD is your weapon because it's how you stay alive. Mm -hmm. The first major runic alphabet was the Elder Futhark, which was complete by the early fifth century, which it's funny to think about people having to piece together a language, but they really did. 
Mm. It can be found on the Kilver Stone, which is a Swedish runestone that's pretty famous now. Um, the Kilver Stone was discovered in Sweden in 1903 during a cemetery excavation, which is how they know when the runestone is from because they figured out when the where the bodies, how old the bodies are that were in the cemetery, essentially. The Elder Futhark was, Futhark was 24 runes arranged in three groups of eight runes, and each group is referred to as an ayat, and that carries across all runic alphabets. They all have units, all called ayats. Most mm. runologists, which I love that for them, that they have, a, <laughs> they have a name, agree the language was created in an attempt to imitate the Roman language as the Romans were attempting to overtake the area at the time. So it was their mm -hmm. way of, of adapting and also like outsmarting me. Like we're not going to speak their language. We're going to make it look like their language, but it's our language. Oh. The Futhork then developed after the fifth century, first consisting of 29 characters. And then later it was 33 characters. There are several theories on how the Futhork was developed, but there are two primary but conflicting theories. Um, first, some think that it was developed in Frisia, which is a region in modern day, the Netherlands slash Germany, it would be across both if it existed today. And then mm -hmm. it later spread to England, but others believe that it began in Scandinavia and then England brought it to Frisia. So there's an agreement that their England and Frisia were involved, but they're not sure who had it first. That's the Futhork. There is mm -hmm. one runic alphabet from the 8th slash 9th century that combines Futhork and Elder Futhark, um, which is preserved in manuscripts from, that were found in modern-day Bavaria. Um, and Will, Willem, Wilhelm, Willem Grimm, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time speaking today, Willem Grimm actually references these runes in... Um, the Grimm Brothers stories, and they are known as the Marcomannic runes and manuscripts. Oh. Um, so they gained some notoriety for this, even though they were really not very popular, but they were notable because the Grimm Brothers wrote about them. Elder Futhark eventually became Younger Futhark, which consisted of only 16 characters. And these changes fall in line with the change from the Proto-Norse language to Old Norse, which corresponded with the Viking Age in the 9th century. So as their language changed, their written language had to change, and they wanted to make the written language more directly translatable into their spoken language, which is why they changed the characters so they could change pronunciation. Younger Futhark has two forms or two ways of writing it. You can write it with long branches where they have the full like stem to the rune with the additional symbol. That's one. Um, and that was used mostly by the Danish or the short twig, mm. which was used mostly by the Swedish and Norwegians where the staff of the rune is, is very short. So they look really different, but they are actually the same language, which is cool. There's also a third form of younger Futhark thought to have been created around this time, and that is known as the Halsinga runes, which were named after the region in Spain where they were found. What's cool about these runes is that they are staffless, and so they are just like a symbol of like cute little curves, and they appear to be a simplification of the younger Futhark that used less strokes. It is uncertain why they would need to use less strokes, but a lot of runologists think it's because um, if they were working with really fine or delicate wood, more strokes would break down that wood faster. So they wanted to be able to write without sacrificing mm. the integrity of the materials, which I think is like clever. Yeah. 
In the 12th century, the younger Futhark again transformed to include new signs that corresponded to certain consonant sounds or silent components to a word. So um, we don't really have an example of this in English, but in some languages they have the A and the E that overlap. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. I can say yes. That, for example, would have been like an added rune to reflect that. Or for words that have a silent letter in it, there would have been a rune to indicate a silent letter. There's something really going on in your neighborhood, Jane. I know. I'll wait. She says like a teacher. Mm -hmm. No, I'll wait. No, I'll wait. <laughs> okay. That has like stopped working or like it. I remember it doesn't like, work oh, the anymore. teacher's waiting for us like I'd be like oh, we have to stop she's waiting but like my students are now, like and you will continue to wait <laughs> I'd be like I'm waiting and they're like cool she's waiting for us we can keep talking as long as we want I'm like right no <laughs> different attitudes oh well yeah oh well um so that's essentially what happened is that they wanted to make runes that were more compatible with their language yeah and this was the 12th century um, but these runes became the medieval runes, and they are now considered to have been common alongside the Latin alphabet for several centuries, really from the 12th to the 15th century, when the use of runes as an alphabet essentially ended. So they were very popular for a very long time. Um, during the medieval times, it appears the runes were used for everyday documentation. Um, they, um, in the mid-1950s, 670 runic inscriptions were found in Bergen, now called the Bregen uh, inscriptions. And these inscriptions include name tags, prayers, personal messages, business letters, and even love letters all written in medieval runes, which shows Aww. that they were common enough. But runes fell out of practice after the 16th century because of the Christ Christianization of Europe which mm -hmm. runes had a connection to magic and mysticism, as I will talk about, um, which obviously is the antithesis of Jesus. So <laughs> they, <laughs> you know, they, the man turned water into wine. Hates no runes, magic. Yeah, no runes though. So they fell out of practice mm -hmm. around that time. Now I'm going to talk about the magical or religious uses of runes. Okay, which cool, cool, cool. really started with Norse mythology. Um, in mm -hmm. Norse mythology, runes have divine origins. The Nolaby rune stone from 600 AD reads, quote, I prepare the suitable divine rune. And the Sparlosa rune stone from the 9th century reads, and interpret the runes of divine origin. Excuse me. So clearly the people inscribing this believed that the runes had divine power. Mm -hmm. The Edic poems, which are a series of Old Norse poems that form the basis of Norse mythology, they're very, very famous, and it's unsure when exactly they were published, um, include several references to the gods' use of runes for their powers. We know that this was published somewhere between the 10th and 12th century when runes were very, very common. Um, and there's plenty of evidence of runes being used in magical ceremonies in the Edic poems and in, like, Norse practice. Mm -hmm. It is known that the Germanic people practiced divination, which was documented by Tacitus as early as 98 AD. He wrote, um, this was a, a ceremony in Germania that he 
witnessed. He wrote, they cut off a branch from a nut-bearing tree and slice it into strips. These they mark with different signs and throw them at random onto a white cloth. Then the state's priest, if it is an official consultation, or the father of the family in a private one, offers prayer to the gods and looking up towards the heaven, picks up three strips, one at a time, and according to which sign they have previously been marked with, makes his interpretation. Now, sign doesn't necessarily mean rune, but it certainly could, right? Or it's at mm-hmm. least something rune-like. Like I said, in the in the Edict poems called the Poetic Edda, uh, there are several references to runes. This includes Valkyrie Sigurdrifa, which is also known as Brunhild, which you might know better um, from Wagner. Yes, yes, yes. Presents uh, Sigurd, who's like the hero, with a memory drought of ale that has been charmed by runes. And she advises him on the use of runes for magic, specifically for the following purposes. Victory runes, meant for good fortune in battle. Ale runes, which are not to get you drunk, they're protection runes. Birth runes for fertility. Wave runes, branch runes, speech runes, and thought runes. So there's many, many different uses of the runes for different magical properties, according to Brunhild. In modern magic rituals, runes are used to guide a person through problems or issues, um, but they kind of follow the patterns that Brunhild presented to Sigurd. It's like still the same basic properties that like a rune will point you in one of those directions. They're not fortune tellers and they're not there for advice, but they more hint towards an answer. And um, the idea is that you allow intuition to fill in the rest. So they're sort of like tarot cards, right? You pull a rune, it might be a victory Mm -hmm. rune. And so you start interpreting around it. But the important thing to know is that the the future is not fixed. Um, That's a very important, that's a very important idea in common magic practices is that like there, you cannot predict the future absolutely you know um so whatever the runes give you it's not a complete or definite answer and you have every right to reject what the runes tell you as well a more complicated way of understanding the runes are through the galdrastafir which are islandic sigils that combine a bunch of runes to create complex but very pretty patterns And essentially they look like a bunch of like Poseidon's tridents, but they're all different rune shapes. They were found in Icelandic grimoires that dated to the 17th century. And what we know about them is that they would, they were used by the say, they were used in a ceremony known as sayor, which means white magic. Um, And these were ceremonies meant for personal aid, right? So it was, they would cast a spell over these runes for help, wishing for a child or marriage or something like that. These staves could be carved on metal or wood, but they would need to be adjoined with blood, which brings me to another point about magic is that we don't, blood is not used in magic rituals because it's a dark thing. Um, at least in this particular Icelandic practice, blood was used because knowledge from runes is considered sacrificial knowledge, according to Odin. Mm. So you need to be willing to give up something important in order to like earn the magic. It's got nothing to do with like, violence or like yeah you know it's not meant to be gory it's meant to show that you're willing to make a sacrifice of something in order to obtain the knowledge you need i have such Uh, a pet peeve of television shows that have somebody like using blood for a ritual or something and they always cut the palm of their hand what 
that's going to be so inconvenient for you to have an injured palm. What? Right. You could just do the thumb, like <laughs> do your <laughs> thumb or like the outside of your arm or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, unfortunately, the use of runes have not always been well intentioned. Um, in the 20th century, the use of runes became very um, controversial because they were the primary symbols used by the Nazi party. The Schutzstaffel, which is known as the Nazi SS flag, but I'm sure if I say the SS flag, you can picture it, um, yeah. uses runic symbols to promote Germanic mysticism and Nazi ideology. So essentially, when Hitler and the Nazis were looking for some sort of uniting thing um, to promote this idea of one, of Germany as a country, because this was the thing, this was, this was how the Third Reich got its power, was that they were trying, they they very successfully convinced people that the idea of a united Germany was really important, particularly because they had just lost World War I. So the idea was that what they told people is that they lost World War I because there was not a united Germany. There was no German identity. There was no German nationalism, right? So they used runes because they were of Germanic origin as sort of a way to say look at this big piece of our history it's so important to us like this is who we are this is us the german people um and so they used various ones for different reasons um in nazi symbolism uh, in order to you know encourage people to be like look at this cool thing that we germans created um yeah. the the Rune Schutzstaffel that I mentioned, the SS symbol, means victory and is the Sieg rune, um, which is why it was adapted as the Nazi flag. Um, the, they also use the Eif rune, which is um, what the two components of the um, swastika are made of. Um, mm. And it means zeal or enthusiasm. They used the gear, which looks like a sideways Z, um, and that means communal spirit. The hoggle was a rune that was created, um, and it meant unshakable faith, particularly in Nazism, um, which Himmler, if you've heard of him, he's like a famous Nazi man, um, designed himself. Mm. Um, the, they, you can see on some of their... Um, uniforms the Leben rune which is like a y but the stem extends through it and that means life um they also used runes that meant kidship family and blood unity um the other half of the swastika is the opfer rune and it means self-sacrifice um the the they also used toad which is an upside down Y with the stem extending through, which is the death rune. It is the opposite of the life rune that they use, but that was also pronounced or meant you, which is why they used it mm -hmm. as the death rune because it sounded like Jew. Oh, um, oh. And finally, and finally, the rune of the upward arrow is a tear rune and it means leadership in battle. Um, so these are just like things that they, you know, took, took from this Germanic language and really adapted because it, their meanings resonated with what the Nazi agenda was, which is why it's important to like note these things when you see these runes out 
and about. Like I've definitely seen people who travel to other countries and they're like, there's a swastika here, but it's important for you to know that the Nazis stole that from an established language that had been around for hundreds of thousands of years. I've particularly seen it. um, The there's the rune Odal. Um, It's, (laughs) it looks like, um, two cross keys almost it's got like a it's a diamond and it's got two little things jutting out of it those are very common on i believe buddhist temples um because they mean they mean life and kinship mm-hmm. um or sorry they mean kinship family and blood unity i think it's i think it was a buddhist temple i saw it on it might have been a hindu temple but i re- i remember seeing a tweet that was like this is on a um temple i'm in I think it was Cambodia. It was it was in a southeastern Asian country, mm-hmm. and they were like, "This is a symbol that was really popular during the Nazi era," um, saying all these things. And people were like, "No, like that's a that's an ancient rune." Yeah. So I think it's something to just like be aware of that these symbols are all are all borrowed from each other. And obviously, obviously, like the swastika now has taken on a meaning that yeah. we can never undo. Um, but it's just something to like be aware of and think about. Um, and something, if you are like a practicing magician to like think about, you know, the now embodied implication or the, the visual implication of runes, um, as you're practicing because. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more so something to use for interpretation of older symbols that predate the Nazis, but I wouldn't go around using them today. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's what I have to say about runes. Yay! Do you have one last rune pun to hit me with, or can I, I do? Close this I out? do. I do. All right. <laughs> Don't edit it out. You will rune today if you edit out my rune puns. You did rune. You did rue into rune twice. I'm. You're done. No. 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 This was not a second ruin pun. This was based on the phrase, you'll rue the day. Rue the day. Oh, rue. Yeah. You're right. You're right. The first time it was ruin. I thought it was ruin. Oh, because I was like, yeah, you'll ru- did I ruin your week? No, yeah, no. Oh, okay. No, well, no, no. I hated that. That is everything we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering podcast at gmail.com. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? I've been going to a lot of zoos recently. I don't know. I've just been on the <laughs> zoo kick, I guess. And um, I... I would like to know about some crazy Australian wildlife. Like I'm already, I'm already afraid of Australia. Just like make me more afraid. Oh no. Okay. Okay. And I can't, I can't be the one to look that up because I will get scared. <laughs> Today I was reading a book with one of my students and it was like open to two pages and it was like about different places that you could travel in the world. And on one side it was like, we go to the ocean. And on the other side, it was, we go to the jungle. And I was like, not me and Sarah. (laughs) No, I'd rather go, I'd rather, (laughs) our two biggest fears back to back. Like, well, Jay goes to the ocean and Sarah goes to the jungle. (laughs) He'll go watch Hostile Planet again. Feel a lot. No. Anyway, that's what I've been wondering. Okay, well, oh, okay. Here I come, Australia. Sarah. (laughs) Yes, me Jane. goes on a tour of Australia just for this. 
you zoom when we zoom next week you're like outside you're like all right so i've got Reporting this fella live from sydney <laughs> you're like i got this fella <laughs> <laughs> me bruce <laughs> bruce no, what do you have to that. say about the wildlife here we can't do that there's a pandemic you still we still can't travel i get it no. australia wouldn't want us percent we're not safe no. here no we're, we're really not <laughs> we're the we're patients we're country zero country. Um, we're not but we are i now. know i know i know i know um sarah do you know what i've been wondering about what have you been wondering i've been wondering about heart island heart i don't really island. know yeah okay yeah i can tell yeah. you about that i learned about that on pose oh yeah i can tell you about that for sure yeah now that it's pride month yeah, it's a it's a sad but appropriate topic for pride. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, that's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is you know what I've been wondering. <laughs>